bulls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson and I'm joined by Rich Johnson of the Football Attic and we've just rented Withnail and I. So Rich, how was rewatching the film for you? Uh, it's it's always a pleasure to uh, to rewatch Withnail and I. It is honestly one of my favourite films of all time. Um, I have watched it several years down the, down the line now uh, since I first saw it. And it's one of those films that just never gets old. And also one of those films, if it's ever on telly, it doesn't matter which point I come in at it, I will still sit there and watch it because it's just one of those few films that, you know, when it just it's just on and you think, well, I know enough about the film to sort of pick it up from any point. So I'll just keep watching it. And it's it's incredibly pleasurable, even though. I, I sort of made the note that it's actually a very quite depressing film, really. Because <laughs> I, I said when I started watching it again, um, my wife said to me, "said Oh, you're watching this?" And, and yeah, and she's like, "Oh, do, do, do you do you want to make yourself miserable?" <laughs> I was like, "Well, no. It's just I really enjoy the film, but it is thoroughly depressing. I mean, the whole." aspects of it the whole setting of it they're flat the two characters and the whole thing is just a, like it's almost like a tragedy and so but it's, it's i don't know it's, it's not uplifting really but it is just a great film so i just ramble on there for 10 minutes no well it's, it's one of those films isn't it it's always billed as you know one of the greatest comedies of you know with the british comedies of all time and you know everyone remembers it fondly for the the quotes and some of the scenes in it but you think sort of there aren't that many you know say you look at their flat and it almost reminds you of the, the flat in bottom. You know, it's that sort of depressing, everything's brown and yeah. messy and you're sort of waiting for something more slapstick to come. But, you know, most of the laughs you have end up coming from, you know, the situations they get themselves in. And the fact that now, for example, is such a raging drunk, but a lovey with it. And, you know, you're kind of laughing at him because he's this sort of amplified, exaggerated character. And yet... You know, you sit there thinking, my God, this really, it, that's how they live. You know, the trying to do the washing up and finding all sorts of hair. It's, <laughs> there's comedy in it, but imagine being in that position where you have to do it. It's, it's quite scary. <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah. And it, it's just, again, like you say, the, the amplification of the characters. It's, the funny thing is, you look at, especially with Neil himself, you look at them and you just think, well, that could so easily have got, um, they could so easily have done it wrong because it's, it's a very exaggerated character. Mm. But at the same time, totally believable because you know, I mean, I, I've done a bit of Amdram myself in, in my past and there are those people who are exactly like that. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I know we're, we're going to come onto quotes later, but it's just one thing that really struck me when I was watching yesterday is the, the point where they've, obviously, like you say, they're living in squad. And uh, at one point, Withnail uh, says, "He says I'm a trained actor reduced to the status of a bum." And it's just the way he <laughs> says it, like with this sort of this hand that comes down as he says it. It's like kind of so dramatic and so kind of indignant that someone such a fine actor as he should be in this gross situation. And it's just like I say, they could so easily have got it wrong because it could even it could easily have turned into like a carry-on film, um, but it doesn't. And it's 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 
it's because it doesn't and because it's so well done that it, it, it works. It, it, like I say, it's such a fine line to tread with that sort of thing where you could easily tip off and go into absolute caricature and just ridiculous, but it, it stays on the right side of, of realistic. And I think the depressing sort of scenario kind of adds to that. Again, you, you have like you get in, in many films where there is you know the the relationship between the two main characters where you've got someone so you know quite frankly ridiculous as Whiffnail who like you say you, you can almost see that being a believable person because you know he still thinks himself as great and, and jumping ahead a little bit he's talking about refusing to be an understudy when he gets offered a role yeah. you know because he has such self-belief in himself and yet you know he'll, he'll quite happily drink you know, lighter fluid you know, because <laughs> why not? You know, if that's what's in the flat, that's what you do. And and even asking for antifreeze and saying you should never mix your drinks. <laughs> you know, it's the uh, it's, uh, the version of don't drink grape and grain. It's, uh, you know, just going down that load. But then you sort of take I or Marwood, as I, I guess his real name is, and he seems to be playing it so straight. But, you know, w- without the sort of flamboyant side of, of Withnail. And um, I, I'll be honest, part of me, you know, you think of conspiracy theory websites on, you know, who talk about Star Wars or this, that and the other. But um, part of me thinks, I wonder if there was an element where Whiffnail was in fact a figment of Paul McGann's uh, imagination. Mm. Oh. <laughs> wow, now we, we've suddenly gone very deep there. <laughs> it's all very, all very Fight Club, isn't it? I was going to uh. say, it's like Fight Club, isn't it? Um, <laughs> fight Club in a depressing world. Well, actually, Fight Club well, was pretty yeah. depressing. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd never heard that one, actually. That, that's quite interesting to think of. Um, oh, man. I, the, the funny thing is, though, I think if that were the case, I think it would, I think it would actually not ruin the film, but I think it would take away from it. Because I think... For, to find out that the character of Winnell is just almost like, it's almost like that kind of, oh, and then it, we woke up and it was all a dream. It's like, <laughs> to find out that this, this great character such as Winnell is actually just a figment of someone's imagination, that, ah, oh, man, that would really not, cause you want to believe that there are real people like that. Because there are, you like, yeah. I, I've met a few of them and it's, <laughs> um, Maybe not to that extreme, but, but, you, they, oh, no, that, oh, that spun me out there. Oh, that. no. I've ruined it already. <laughs> yeah, have yeah, I hate this film now. <laughs> ah, brilliant. <laughs> but um, I say, moving on, you sort of think that, you know, part of, it's not one of the biggest casts in any film, and yet, you know, some of the, you know, it's got one of the best sort of semi, you know, side characters in Uncle Monty, who's, again, ludicrous in his own way. He's Withnail's uncle, and yet he almost steals the show, in, certainly in the scenes that he's in. You know, he manages to be in the same country house as with Nell and I later on. And yet, you know, he's such a presence. Um, I mean, it's the same in, in most of the films that um, that he's, he's done. But, you know, he's a rapey bastard, isn't he? <laughs> well, it's the line where he says, like, you know, I will have you even if it must be burglary. It's, like, <laughs> it's just uh, but, but I think that's one of the things that I really do love about the film and I, I, I sort of when I was sort of making notes when I was re-watching it um, I, I kind of made the note that every character in it every person they have playing the characters 
it seems to be perfect for the role they have. And I'm not just talking like the main characters, but even like um, Michael Elphick as the poacher and, and even the guy behind the bar, the old drunk behind the bar, <laughs> are right down to the, the, the copper that says get in the back of the van. You know, they, they just there isn't a, some, a, someone that's there is no person in the film that seems to drag it down at all. You know, you often get films where you've got like a couple of brilliant actors or something, and then you've got a couple of, uh, you know, okay. But this one just, it doesn't matter what their role is or their character. Everyone just seems to fit perfectly in it. But moving on to that, and it's something I know we sort of prompted earlier on. Um, if this film was remade today, who do you think would be the actors? Or who would, who would, who could possibly pull off, Certainly, the the outlandish Whiffnell or Uncle Monty. Well, when I was considering this, I, I ended up sort of. I was while I was trying to make notes, I ended up actually just writing a rant about this idea. <laughs> um, uh, and I just put sort of like, I, I hope in all sincerity, no one ever does remake it because yes. why would you? It's perfect and it doesn't need remaking. It's just, I know, I know it's easy to say that because it's like you know, you'll look at films down the years and you'll think, oh, that's a really great film, and then you'll find out it's actually like the third version of that film. Mm. So there are films out there that have been remade almost like without you knowing it because they were the it's like the one we know is actually a remake so but i just i mean in in terms of i suppose because even though it's made in the 80s it was set at the end of the 60s so you don't have that kind of um issue of if you remade it it would take it out of its time i think it would if they if they remade it and tried to do it now as in set now it wouldn't work because it was it's so of the time that it's set in but because it wasn't about the 80s uh you have the advantage that it that it ages well as well because it's not kind of stylized at the time it's already stylized into the past yeah. and so i think if someone remade it you you have that advantage in the when they set it in the past it wouldn't be such an issue but i don't know i just <clears throat> I, I just I, I really hope no one does it because i don't see what the point would be it's like if you remake something that you know there has to be a good reason for remaking it other than just making money which seems to be a lot of reasons why they remake things these days it's like you know you can take certain films and remake them and because you want to improve on it because there are certain films out there that were made at a time and they you know for whatever reason be it sort of technical abilities or just the styling of that time you know it it, it hasn't aged well so for instance say like um I don't know, just one that's randomly popped by the amityville horror when you look back at that original film the amityville was it was, it's you know you look watching out and it looks so dated yeah uh, and it, it's not a great film in that sense and it was remade in the sort of mid 2000s and actually to be honest i thought it wasn't a bad remake i think it got pretty much panned but but i think that's because the original film wasn't that great to start with but i think if you take a great film and try and remake it it's like why bother you already have this perfect film it doesn't need it it's like i, I think i made a comment it's like you know no one's ever repainted the mona lisa and we have no plans to redo the Sistine Chapel in glorious 3D CGI. <laughs> so why? You know, there's just no need. So I was really struggling with this. And, I, and so in the end, I just came to the conclusion that it's, it's a perfect piece of art and should be left as such. So it's, I couldn't think of anyone who could actually remake it because I couldn't actually bring myself to consider that as a possibility. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had this, you know, again, you know, I'm not a fan of, of remaking. And you sort of think, you know, one that sticks in my head because... You know, Whiffnell and I is based on 
you know, sort of novel, isn't it? Um, mm. When you think that you go back to a source material and, you know, we'll take, say, Total Recall, for example. You know, one of the, the earlier one was one of my favourite films anyway, you know, with, with Schwarzenegger. And yet what they did with the remake was they didn't remake the film. They remade the version of the book. Um, and it actually turned out to be quite different. Didn't make it any better. I still hated it. But, um, you know, and, and I had this horrible vision and, you know, thinking with this question in mind and, and a lot of it was very, you know, just looking purely on visuals sort of what do the actors look like and, and who do they portray this horrible, hideous vision of Whiffnell being played by Russell Brand. And, oh. and I just thought, oh, God, what have I done? <laughs> I, I thought I've opened up a can of worms here. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, if that ever happened. Oh, oh no, you are. Oh, well, you hope, put that thought in my head now. Well, hopefully no one of any importance is listening to this and thinking. Oh, God, could you imagine oh. that? Oh, Oh, oh man, I'm, I'm almost losing faith in humanity just <laughs> but, then but that's you, the thing as well, because yeah. you think they'd have to, you, you kind of get the feeling they'd end up going for stars, yeah. just to sort of, you know, to sort of have that cachet. But I guess I just don't see the point. It's it, it's like Get Carter. Get Carter, to me, is perfect as it is. Yes, it's very dated, but at the same time, it doesn't matter because it's set in the 70s. It is very dated, but it's a great film in itself. And that, to me, is is... That's that to me is what kind of transcends the dating of a film. Is if is if oh, excuse me if it is a great film in itself, you get past the dating side of it because you just look at it and think, well, it's an old film. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like The Shining as well. That looks dated now, obviously, but it's a cracking film. But and and ET. I mean, like no one's ever sort of said, oh, should we remake ET? Because it was perfect the way it was, even though it looks very early 80s, because it is from the early 80s, it doesn't matter, because it just looks like, I mean, if they remade it now and set it in the early 80s, it would look the same. So what's the point? And then on the other hand, you look at, you know, Back to the Future, and you think, right, they actually made a storyline in that where it's set in 2015. And of course, all we did when it came around to that date was, well, did that happen? Well, that, did, that didn't happen. Oh, well, if you think, you know, you know, we're talking by Skype now. That's how they talk in that film. It's it's all very sort of roundabout, really. And, um, you know, again, we've, you know, we, we've chosen an 80s film to talk about that was set in 1969. So, yeah, you know, it's uh, we, we're already pushing the boundaries, I guess. But, um, you know, I mean, sort of when you think of some of the scenes, you know, even when you go, you know, moving into the, the Lake District where they are and they're talking, you know, the scene with the Randy Bull. I mean, it's just, it's perfectly done. Um, you know, and thinking about that, you know, even, you know, whenever it is, 60s, 80s, if it was done now, it's still funny because ultimately it's very, it's a crude joke. It's a Randy Bull that wants to have sex with something. It just happens to be... Yeah. You know, Paul McGann, you know, and why not? Well, exactly. Uh, I mean, if I was that Paul, I, I would quite have a go at Paul McGann myself. <laughs> he's, a, he's a beautiful human being. <laughs> but the funny thing is with that as well is that well, I was just going to say, it's like that is a perfect example of, I mean, that's a slapstick. Yeah. If you look at that, it's slapstick in its approach. It's not, there's nothing clever about that piece. It's just a bull and someone confronted by it. It's just like a cartoon, really. But it, it 
works without descending into crap slapstick because again of the characters who are in it and of course if you stick swearing in it i mean you know <laughs> i mean the fact that you've just got Widnell standing there just leaning casually on on the wall just sort of like giving him instructions you know the farmer says something and he just repeats it to him like <laughs> he's an expert hence the line a coward you are with an expert on bulls you are not it's like <laughs> and it's just the fact that he's such an asshole, just sort of leaning there you know kind of very calm and everything because he's not the one facing down this randy bull and just sort of you know it's exactly what you know what mates would do though isn't it you'd sit there that the guy is in potential danger of his life and the rest of us sit around and take the piss and it's not long afterwards that we get the part where they go back and find that Uncle Monty's arrived and it's, Monty, you terrible cunt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, we'd already met Uncle Monty at this point when they've gone round to his flat, you know, before they've taken this holiday. And, you know, he is just, he, you can tell he's, he's playing that fruity, very sort of, <laughs> that old gentleman who's, predatory but it seems to be given off the fact that because he's chasing a man it's not so bad i think if this was a scene where he was grabbing <laughs> well, exactly a, yeah if he was grabbing a woman saying it must be burglary it's <laughs> you start getting the well if they were any younger it'd be the operation you tree detectives round. but um <laughs> exactly well that that's one of the th- funny thing is actually is in, in terms of like having rewatched it down the years there are like, there are things that sort of you miss at times and there's one joke that i'd missed all these years and i only saw it when i rewatched it again and that's the bit where they've where they meet the farmer and which of, of course spawns one of the best lines where Widnell keeps saying, are you the farmer? Uh, to which Mar would reply, stop saying that Widnell. Of course he's the fucking farmer, you know, because <laughs> it's a guy on a tractor and on a farm, you know. Um, but it, there's a bit where they're trying to, they're saying, oh, you know, we, we're renting the cottage off, um, what's his face? Um, Monty, Montague Widnell. And he says, oh, I can't, can't, him. And he says, and the farmer doesn't know. And then he, oh, French fella, uh, something, Delatouche or something. And, and they're going, who? And then he goes, oh yeah, came up here last year with his son. And he went, yeah, that's the one. And I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. I thought, oh, I didn't know he had a son. And then I've just realised when I was watching it, of course, he didn't mean his son. He yeah. meant a young boy that he brought up and said was his son. And it's, I can't believe I've missed that all these years. And, yeah, and of course, it's the wry smile on Marwood's face when he says, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we sit there and, you know, like, it sort of ties into when he goes in, when they're in the pub, you know, going back almost to the start of the film, and you, know, you walk into a pub toilet, and there's the sort of gentleman sitting in the corner just shouting, pants, <laughs> walking into a toilet, seeing I fuck asses on the wall. It's, it's just, there's this undercurrent of it throughout the film where, you know, and, and you know, Monty isn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, I suppose looking at it through our current eyes, and and bear in mind this was set nearly 50 years ago, but, you know, you could almost sort of forgive him thinking, well, he's he's just fallen in love with someone, you know, maybe it's his midlife crisis or something, and, you know, it's it's just one of those things where you just think, but it must be bloody scary. (laughs) Having him chasing you around and jumping in the middle of the night. I think it's as well because when he when they're in the cottage and he and he tries to have him on that night he's he's done himself up in makeup as well which <laughs> makes him look even more terrifying because it's kind of I don't know it's it's obviously looked at himself and and made himself beautiful but 
and he's a big man and i don't just mean like fat he's a tall man as well he is like a giant you know if if he managed to pin you down there's n- you're not going anywhere you know yeah. that that's happening and it's just but it's because he's so kind of camp and and like you said fruity that it kind of almost it makes it almost slapstick but like you say if it was a, if it was a, a tall bloke chasing a woman it would just take on a completely different context but it's just it's it's played for laughs but still the element of fear is totally there it's not like um it's not like a benny hill sketch you know there is a genuine <laughs> fear there as well i'm unfortunately i was just thinking of benny hill at exactly the same time just being imagine if they played yakety sax over that <laughs> chasing throughout the night and everything else but the, you know the the fact that you know he's obviously thinking that i or, or marwood is you know, sort of up for it because of what Whiffnails told him. Yeah, I told him he was a toilet trader, <laughs> which is still one of my favourite phrases ever. The fact that you said that to me on Facebook yesterday and it still works, you know, yeah. without having seen the film, I just thought, yeah, fair enough. But this is the thing as well, actually, is that people who know with now, people who have seen it, obviously, because there are so many quotable lines in it, you know, you can say one of these things or you'll hear a line in everyday life that sounds the same and, and sometimes you can't stop yourself repeating the actual line from with and I. And then sometimes someone will understand what you're talking about. But most of the time, people just look at you blankly. Not that I'm saying I usually say toilet trade in the middle of meetings. <laughs> or anything. But it's just those things. I mean, it's just you like you say, there's so many bloody quotable lines for it. It is ridiculous. You know, I, within five minutes of it, I, I came up with about 100 different quotes. I mean, going back to that scene in the pub. I mean, that is just one of the best scenes in the whole film. It's like, you know, the uh, the funniest thing is it, it kind of happened to me once, not in a pub, but um, when I was when I was going out with one of my, with my, um, my, my, what is now my ex, who was actually the person that introduced me to Whitland and I, um, I'd gone up to visit my parents in Liverpool. And at the time, I wanted to keep it on the down low and everything, you know, because I'm such a player. Because, um, like, if, I, if my Liverpoolian relatives found out I had a girlfriend, they'd be like, they'd be like, honour me. So I was like, so I wanted to phone her. So I went across the roads to use the phone box. Um, and I was on the phone for probably about 20 minutes. And then eventually there's this guy that wanted to use the phone box and he queued up outside. And after, like, five minutes, I was kind of like, oh, God, yeah. And then I, I can't remember what he said. And at the time, I was like at the height of my university pretentiousness. So I think I was wearing like some kind of Hessian shirt, you know, and kind of like probably uh, multicolored trousers or something. So, I, you know, to, to the average working man in Liverpool, I would have looked exactly like, you know, the, the archetypal perfume ponds. And he actually said something similar to that when I eventually came out the... Uh, um, out the phone box, he said something like, "It even smells like a ponce or something." Because I had like <laughs> Calvin Klein escape on or something, like, and I just it just struck me, you know, because I think we'd I think we'd only seen with them like about a month before, and I just thought, "Oh my god!" You know? <laughs> this this guy I think would make a living out of out the pubs now with the old uh, was it no spray no lay toilet attendants and jeez oh, yeah uh, I mean it'd be like something out of the in betweeners then, but you know, but this but this is the thing, you know, you talk about you know quotes and I, I dread to think and it must be horrible say if you work in a tea room how many people of, of our age walk into oh, yeah. a tea room going cake and tea yeah and just pointed to a table and gone all right here <laughs> demanding the finest wines available to yeah. humanity and then in threatening to install a jukebox in there <laughs> 
Well, I actually went to Penrith once and I looked all over the place for the tea rooms and it was only when I got back that I, that I remembered it wasn't in Penrith. Even though it's set in Penrith, it's in like Milton Keynes or Leicester or something, the actual place where they filmed it. Yeah, I, I think I, I obviously doing various research for this, you know, well, I say research looking at Wikipedia and IMDb. And um, they said that the tea room is a chemist in Milton Keynes. Yeah, and and it's, it's very disappointing. <laughs> it's disappointing. You suddenly realise that you know, this and moving on to a film that I'll hopefully discuss at some point is Superman 4, which was pretty much entirely filmed in Milton Keynes. Yeah, so oh my god, is that, is that the one with Nuclear Man in it? Yes, it is, yes. Oh, that is awful. <laughs> I, have you ever seen, um, there's a, there's a couple of YouTube channels, there's a, one that does honest trailers, and there's another one that does everything wrong with. Yeah. And they, the one for everything wrong with Superman 4 is, is great, because it just shows how much footage they keep reusing all the time. It's probably, it was probably longer than the film, to be honest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, and again, like sort of coming back here and and you think, you know, you go to Penrith, you, you can go to any anywhere in the Cotswolds or down at Bath or something. You've got these tea rooms that, you know, even now, if you take away the obvious tourists, they are still going to be full of locals. You know, the old ladies who go in there for cake and tea. And, um, you know, you, you can imagine the shock when two, you know, incredibly drunk sort of loush loveys sort of swan in and take over the place and you know it's a you almost judge the owners for not calling the police sooner but um <laughs> as i say bear in mind what i do for a living and it, where i work you know it's the sort of thing that they call the police about anyway you know, <laughs> these people are so out of character they must be they must be stopped yeah i mean it just the thing is i, I first saw it in 1996 um when I was at uni and by this point um, I, I think I was starting to kind of um, you know really come out of my shell at uni um, I, I was kind of very boring at school and you, you know, didn't have any kind of you know personality to speak of and then when I went to uni I kind of got away from that school mentality and I'd started to sort of um, become more of an individual and I think by the time I'd seen Withnail and I I was kind of I I think I was a massive fan of the cure as well so I was generally dressing a lot in black Um, but by the end of that year I was dressing I think when I went back to uni in the third year um, I was wearing a teddy bear t-shirt and the stripy trousers. Um, so it's like kind of, I, I was kind of on that path. And so I think with that, I really sort of struck a chord with me at the time because it was, I was very pretentious at uni. So it kind of like, I, I very much saw myself in, in that whole situation and could very much identify with the whole kind of, um, you know, kind of, Poncy, sensitive boy meets sort of working class uh, potential thug man, and it's like kind of that was my ultimate fear back in those days. Because obviously, you know, at uni you go into a lot of pubs, and some of the pubs you go to, uh, you don't know. I mean, I I grew up in in Coventry and I went to uni at Coventry, but I never went out, so I didn't know which of the pubs that you go into were the kind of biker pubs or the sort of the old men pubs. But we just wander in there as a bunch of students. You know, and, and you could just, and you just know now, you could just imagine everyone else look at you and hating you intensely, like you bloody students. And yet at the time, you're so oblivious to it. So that whole kind of scene in the pub just, just really kind of just, it, it was me that was. Every time I went into a pub for lunch, that was what was going through my head, you know, that someone was suddenly going to go up to you go, what's your name, Mac Fuck? You know? <laughs> it's like something out of deliverance, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's around then as well. We you see 
obviously the, the say prop in the flat where it's the fairy liquid bottle and the pipe you know that Wiffnell's obviously explaining just enough for us to realize that later in the film this may make an appearance and we'll need to know what it is you know they set up in the fact that you know you hear that was it what was the the Hollywood actor's name was it Tom Sizemore who had a prosthetic penis in order to oh, do yeah. fake like fake his drug tests yes. <laughs> and thinking, obviously this is far more low budget because this was a very liquid bottle <laughs> and it's, <laughs> talking about getting the urine of a child in order yeah to... I was going to say when they're driving off he goes I need to procure a child <laughs> <laughs> now had Uncle Monty said that Oh man! But there was, the funny thing is, when they actually start driving off, and, and he's uh, leaning out the window, and he shouts "scrubbers" at the <laughs> bunch of girls at the bus stop. I have actually done that myself. Not, I don't think it actually was to a bunch of girls. It might have been to a bunch of blokes actually. <laughs> when I was a little bit drunk coming home one night, I just leaned out the window, "scrubbers." Like, <laughs> it's very much the, the that that version of bus wankers. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, like you know, we we have the scene when you know they they return back to London, and they're making so much, well, they're losing so much time that Whiffnail, in his inebriated state, has decided to make up the time and drive himself. <laughs> and of course, this is where the fairy liquid bottle comes in. But we do have the awesome, of the one of my favourite quotes was, "I've only had a few ales." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and of course, you know, you know, sometimes you, you need that Dutch courage to be able to drive. But um, <laughs> the fact that the police pulled him over and that's at that point, he says, my cousin's a QC. <laughs> that makes any difference. But this is like that sort of that alternative world that, you know, perhaps you need to be this sort of weird eccentric alky to to get into where that's your reaction. It's not there's no apologies. There's no nothing. It's purely. Well, I've just had a few ales. What, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah. I th- but I think that uh, the funny thing is as well is the the ever increasing distance between the two characters in the film. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's all played because it's set at the end of the sixties, and then of course they make. I think it's Danny that makes that comment. Yeah, is the the greatest. A uh, decade in the history of the world is coming to an end, like referencing the selling hippie wigs in hippie wigs, hippie wigs in Woolworths, <laughs> and it's just like and that whole kind of the sense of everything uh, that you know will never happen again coming to an end very much sort of pervades the whole thing and and of course that's you know the whole thing is it's it's their friendship that's coming to an end but when you kind of look at the two characters it's you can believe that they would live together but at the same time you think when you think about it you think well how the hell would they have ended up together because obviously by the end of the film Paul McGann has very much straightened himself out and and but you can see at some point they'd have been you know probably at acting school they'd have been very similar characters but over time they've diverged as Paul McGann starts to take the whole thing you know see it as a career and take it seriously whereas you know Windnail is very much the lovey who just thinks acting he was born into it and therefore it should come to him and it's 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 just interesting to see the end of the film because it ends on quite it ends on a very down note there's no i'm not and i like that about the film there's no kind of redeeming it there's no kind of and, and you know well actually i think in the original book um are you aware of the original ending in the um, book? yeah i am it's um, yeah dark yeah, very dark yeah because <laughs> in the original ending of the book i believe he pours a bottle of wine into i think what was uncle monty shotgun and shoots himself yeah it's um i you sat there thinking, you know, the end of the film, obviously, you know, we get to the point where 
Marwood says to Wiffnell, you know, don't walk me to the station, you know, making it a sort of physical separation, you know, they're in the rain in the park and, you know, it's like, right, we're, this is where we end. And, you know, that's bad enough as it is. And, you know, get Wiffnell already half cut shouting Hamlet at some wolves in London Zoo. But, um, but yeah, I mean, imagine if they put that ending in. My God. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think they got the ending right on that. Yeah. I think because not, I think in that sort of scenario, it's best to leave it on like a kind of mystery. It's like nobody knows actually where Widnell went, but you kind of get the sense his life was going downhill anyway. It was already on that path, but you don't kind of need to see it and have it confirmed. No. Um, and I think, I mean, hey, you never know. It opens up a sequel, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Widnell and I too. Hmm. Yeah, the, with the return of Widnell. Although, to be fair, I think, you know, that this is the thing is, you know, if this was a Star Wars film or something, they'd, they'd have one of these new spin-offs for it or something, and it'd be, you know, does Wiff now go to rehab or does he, you know, does he end up making something of himself? But, you know, it's, as you said before, it's, you know, the, the film is their friendship. And, and in what is really quite a short period of time, you know, they, they've gone from, you know, degenerates living in a horrible squatted flat to the fact that, you know, Paul McGann's gone to the lengths of, getting his hair cut therefore he's mm. a completely different person but you know he's he's obviously got himself a job and you know when he's come back and you know danny and his squatter colleague are in there you know smoking away and, and talking about the end of the 60s that's when he cut it almost sort of hits him well it does hit him it's, it's when they pretty much get evicted and that's when he realizes like right i've had my fun i've done my you know we've We've had our egg sandwiches and this, that and the other and gone to the pub at opening time. But this is it. This is where one, you know, Whiffnell is quite happy in that lifestyle because one, it's all he knows and, you know, where's the motivation? But, you know, being the straight man in, in this anyway, it's, I suppose it's quite easy for him to, to go through that transformation and go for a different job. And, you know, and, and like you say, it's seeing that the two sides sort of drift apart over, you know, what is essentially a weekend in, the Lake District, it's, um, you know, it is poignant. And, you know, it, we talk about it as a comedy, but, you know, there really isn't that far from the tragedy that we hinted at at the start where, you know, ultimately they could quite easily have stuck with Nell at the end shooting himself in the head. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, it's, I suppose it's, when you look at the two characters as well, there's like, you know, you've got I or Marwood or potentially Peter, as uh, I think some other people seem to think there's some scene with a letter addressed to Peter or something, although it is Marwood. Um, um, there's a just it's like he's kind of accepted that this, you know, it's time to grow up. It's like, you know, we've had our fun, but this is where the real world comes into it, you know, and, I, and you can't just keep living in this fancy world. Whereas Widnell is clearly the sort of person who just can't accept that you have to sort of do that at some point. It's like the person who wants to sort of forever be a child is like some kind of Peter Pan character. But, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like a drunk Peter Pan, basically. <laughs> oh God. I, I, part of that really appeals to me. <laughs> what the young ones or something? <laughs> well, I think that's the thing. It, it appeals to everyone's part that doesn't want to really grow up, but yeah. it's, it, and I think it's it's one of those he's one of those people who just can't accept that you have to do some growing up. You know, it's like he can't face the idea of any kind of real responsibility 
because even to him acting is not a responsibility it's it's his calling and it's you know it's something that he should be doing so it's not he doesn't feel responsible by doing that he just kind of feels that that's what he is you know and and Whereas obviously, um, Marwood is very much of the opinion that, well, it is a job and it's something that you, if you want to do, you have to be serious about it. And you're not just, you cannot continue this sort of, this sort of endless childhood and expect everything to still work. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's clear divisions in the two characters before the film starts. But at the same time, again, similarly to how, you know, leaving everything a mystery at the end of it, there's so much potential that someone could go back and do like the adventures of young Widnail or something, or, <laughs> you know, or just, or just like a prequel to see how they, uh, but it doesn't need it. it. No, we don't need to see that. We just accept that they're together at the start of the film. We know they have a history and we know that afterwards one of them goes off and is probably very successful because that's heavily implied. And the other one either ends up, you know, dead or an alcoholic and never succeeding. And, I suppose, you know, someone somewhere is probably trying to get commissioned like a, a kind of a reunion, like kind of Windnail and I 2020 or something, you know, and it sees them return as old men. It's like, but it's, we don't need it. I mean, okay, Uncle Monty wouldn't be in it, but like we just, it just doesn't need it. It needs to exist in that time slot and everything beyond what you see in the film is, is, in the ether it doesn't need ever making real but the weird thing is as you know we, we talked about a novel but this is actually a sort of semi-autobiography isn't it it's yeah yeah it's the director you know th- this director has obviously gone through you know a lot of this and, and embellished whatever to make the story but the fact that auntie Mon- uncle monty is based on a real person and Whiffnell is based on a real person is is quite ludicrous you know, and, well, and I think the um, the scene in it where he's talking about some uh, young boy that's uh, with an Italian director and he's like, you know, he kind of like says, uh, was it like a tenor for a tenor for your tit or whatever? And he says, like, that's how he got the part. Well, that was based on the director's experience with Franco Zaffarelli, yeah. um, the Italian director um, who did very much, you know, come a bit Uncle Monty on him. Um, uh, yeah. So it's, it's well, it'd be interesting to see. <laughs> Um, how much of the rest of it obviously I'm, I'm assuming the guy did not kill himself at the end because he made a very good stab at writing something after he was dead if he did <laughs> but then you know sort of looking at that and, and you think you know that having that sort of outlandish you know experience you know it, maybe it makes him a better actor I don't know you know it's like yeah, you sort of have to go through these things and, and channel them and all that but um, yeah, no, it's it's very scary. But then the film almost didn't get made, and yet, who was the savior? It was the savior of life of Brian, George Harrison. Yep, who the handmade films. Yeah, uh, who'd have thought it? I didn't see him doing a cameo like he did in Life of Brian. Then, <laughs> who was he in Life of Brian? He played a very small. Uh, was it Mister Papadopoulos? <laughs> he, I think he, I can't remember the line he did, but he uh, he appeared in one of the crowd scenes towards the end. Oh yeah, 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 and it was just like, you know, he's one of these people that, you know, he obviously had, had more money than, but he obviously saw this project, and you know, I'm sure he made back his money tenfold. But um, you know, it was weird then that, you know, obviously they had while my guitar gently sleeps in the background and plenty of Jimi Hendrix and everything like that. It's um, you know, that was again sort of music of around that time. But, um, you know, one of the other trivia things was this was the film that prom- prompted Jimi Hendrix's family to take back control of his back catalogue because they thought it was too linked to drugs. 
Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, well, I say Wikipedia, who knows? But, um, <laughs> you know, if, if this is the thing that prompted them to worry about Jimi Hendrix's connection to drugs, then uh, something's gone horribly wrong somewhere. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Yeah. yeah. But um, <clears throat> a bit, bit late by that point as well. Yeah. But it was also nice to see, you know, and I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but um, Danny, who was um, played by Ralph Brown, the drug dealer, he was almost exactly the same character as he was in Wayne's World 2. <laughs> I've no, I've never seen Wayne's World it's, 2. It's uh, passable. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he's he basically plays a roadie in that, you know, they, they try and get sort of set up their own concert in their town in America and they come to England to get this legendary roadie as seen by Jim Morrison and um, yeah it's exactly the same character you know he tells this story in Wayne's World where he's talking about getting Ozzy Osbourne on stage um, because he he had trouble with brown M&Ms and throwing a shoe at a Bengal tiger but um, it's almost the sort of thing he'd tell now after a, you know just a, a regular Camberwell carrot on a Sunday afternoon <laughs> that's another thing that's another one of those culture references when you say Camberwell character someone yeah. and they either know what you're talking about or they don't <laughs> yeah and in fact did, did they um, they had to get one of the engineers to make it because he used to be a hippie oh my god <laughs> <laughs> and in fact they used about 12 Rizzlers for it <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean this is it I mean you know we're, we're talking about a film that you know it's not it's not as widely known as as some of the the films of the eighties, but it's very much you know a home video sort of classic, wasn't it? It's, it became a cult film, didn't it? it? It was you know wasn't a huge success in the cinema. I mean, it did pretty well, but you know it's one of those that you know you talk about and talk. Oh, I need to get that film out on video or DVD or whatever, and um, you know very much got a sort of a second life almost. Well, yeah, I mean. The I'm trying to think because, like I say, I saw it in 1996, which was it was you know kind of re-released in cinemas as part of its 10-year anniversary, which is an odd thing as well because I always regard this as a 1986 film, and yet if you look at it, it was released apparently in April 1987. So I but I saw it in 96, which was supposedly its 10-year kind of anniversary. So I actually got to see it the first time I ever saw it was at the cinema. and and after that, I then sort of got the video of it when that came out, and then I got the DVD, and then I got the Blu-ray of it, uh, and I, well, I got the 20th anniversary sort of edition as well, which is like a steelbook with the soundtrack in it as well. But I already had the soundtrack because you used to be able to buy that, um, coupled with How to Get Ahead in Advertising, okay, which was a Judy Grant film, yeah. but and that one actually had more of the soundtrack on it. Um, and speaking of, I, I really like the soundtrack as well. And I don't just mean the kind of music they've put in, like you said, all along the Watchtower and things yeah. like that. But but the actual music itself, I mean, it's the, the theme tune's an odd one as well, because um, it's kind of got this very sort of lilting guitar and then this kind of almost like kind of circus organ type mm. sound to it. And it's it's an odd mix, but again, it sort of works. But then, I, again, it reminded me like that the music has... At the end of the film, as the credits start rolling, it was like a cross between Rocky and the Incredible Hulk, where he walks away at the end. <laughs> you know, he's walking away holding a half a bottle of wine, just drifting off into, no doubt, certain death. Yeah, quite. Well, liver failure, maybe, but uh, yeah. pro- probably curled up under a under a bridge. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you look at yeah anything like that. I mean, the I suppose you can use music you know, to to 
to date the film as especially if it's set in the past you know i'm sure like you know if we look at you know the vietnam films you know they're so heavily influenced by the music to to put it into that time but you know this was very much the same you know opened on you know mcgann looking like john lennon you know with the round glasses and everything and you know have a little bit of beatles and Jimi hendrix playing as well and it's just you know and, and it feels weird talking about an 80s film with late 60s music and and everything else but you know by then you know, we we don't have the sort of references that we do today. You know, people don't have, don't have YouTube or IMDb or anything. So, you know, it was like going back in time in a way. But um, it certainly helped it in, in my opinion because, you know, like you say, it was it was already looking back at a time, you know, nearly 20 years back then. Yeah, things had changed so much. Well, quite, yeah. I mean, you think mid-80s was kind of, you know, in the middle of Thatcher's Britain and, you know, you just had the minor strike, you know, the end of major industry. And But even in the film itself, you can see all the transition because there's that scene just before they leave where they're knocking the old buildings down. Because, of course, when it's set, it's when, you know, where they've been building all the sort of tower blocks. And it's this kind of... And that's the whole thing. That The whole film is all about the transition, like you say, the, the transition of the friendship, the transition of time. And it's it's kind of very making, very much making the point of, you know, the 60s is ending and this is like the new future. And it's, and as we all know, the 70s turned out to not be such a brilliant future at all, really. And all the, the hot eyes blocks that they put up, you know, in this bright new world actually turned out to be crap. And, you know, they kind of ended up going back to sort of terraced houses instead. And it's, it's sort of interesting to see that. But I mean, I suppose if, advantage with the film is that because it wasn't made in the 60s they they can make that point because they know what happened because it was you know made 20 years later so it's all with the benefit of hindsight and yet they still managed to shoe in from monty the line about the uh, the end of an age was shat on by the tories and shoveled up by labor and um <laughs> to be fair that could date the film at any time i think but well to, quite yeah one for, one for the modern day yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, I think going on that point, like about um, dating, I think there's, uh, I th- believe there's a couple of mistakes in it time-wise. I think, um, I'm sure at one point you see like a, a modern car yeah. at some point. I can't remember where, I don't know if it's on the motorway or something. I, I but... think because they, they, they're going up the M, well, the M1, I suppose, would be going up there. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I just think, because I, I did hear someone not long ago talk about with Nell and I, and that was one of the things that kind of, you know, stuck, and even though it's a minor thing, <laughs> seeing, I suppose, what would it be in the 86, 87, it'd be like a Ford Sierra or something. But I think also that the part of the motorway they were supposed to be on hadn't actually been opened at the time the film was set. I'm sure there's that as well. <laughs> and actually, when when they were, when um, in the scene where they're knocking the, the old houses down, they pan across and Trellick Tower is in the background. And I thought, I wonder if that was actually around that. And the thing is, it's a bit of an odd one because Trellick Tower started building in 1968, so before the film was set. However, it didn't finish until 1972. So it's like, mm, so yeah, whether it would have been at that stage, but who cares? You know, it's like <laughs> minor things. If, if, if that's the biggest gripe about the film, I think uh, it's done okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, okay, well, I say really. It was just a brilliant excuse to rewatch the film, to be honest. I think uh, I got it from iTunes with one of their 199 bargains a couple of months ago. And yeah. um, not a bad one. It was, you know, again, just I, I saw it the first time. I was probably about, I think that might have been sort of 96, 97. And my, my then 
girlfriend who was very much trying to be want to be part of the Hampstead set and all that. And it's, I'm sure she, I'm sure her parents knew Richard E. Grant or something. But it was very uh, yeah, very odd one, but not, nice to reminisce and you know as I sit here worrying about a mortgage with my Labrador and small child, thinking this is about a world away from my life. Yeah, thank, quiet. <laughs> thank fuck. Yeah. <laughs> all right well um rich it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you about this and um thank you for the inspiration because as i say this was this was your call and uh very well done sir uh well it's absolutely thoroughly enjoyable to do so mate thank yeah. you but um yeah so what what we'll be doing with the podcast is uh we'll be playing the song that was number one at the time of the release which was uh as i say another slight beatles reference was let it be for fairy aid so um Anyway, thanks for joining us at the Beat Max Video Club. We'll uh, have to return this before we pay any lateness fees. And um, we'll, uh, we'll make sure it's rewound. So, Rich of the Football Attic, thank you very much. Thank you very much, too. No worries. Let it be.